Nuclear Mass Murder After the atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the U.S. government quickly imposed severe censorship on all information about what the bombs actually did. Journalists were denied access to the cities without clearance and a military escort, and it was illegal for reporters to write about anything on the impact to the Japanese people or even speak to Japanese survivors about what had happened to them. Film had been shot in the immediate aftermath of both A-bomb blasts, either by Japanese newsreel photographers or U.S. military personnel. But citizens were denied the chance to see it because, as one filmmaker who resurrected this footage and gave it a proper context tells you, Not only did the Americans seize all the Japanese footage, but then this American, even though it was shot by the U.S. military, when they brought it back to the U.S., it was seized by the military and it was suppressed for decades. The black and white Japanese footage did not emerge anywhere until about 1970, 25 years. And the American uh, color footage even later, around 1980, when it became known that this footage existed. That's how long it was suppressed. Well, when you finally have a chance to see this long-suppressed footage of the human suffering caused by the U.S. nuclear bombing of two Japanese cities in August 1945, you understand why it had to be suppressed if the brand-new nuclear industrial complex was going to have a chance at continuing to grow. And you see how intentional it has been from the start that we are stuck in that awful, deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we revisit an important film that fills us in on our atomic legacy, Atomic Cover-Up. It shows on-the-ground footage from those two cities from as early as one day. It includes long-suppressed footage from those two cities from as early as one day after the atomic explosion. We talk with filmmaker Greg Mitchell, who combined restored film with decades-old interviews with the newsreel cameramen who shot the footage. And with the recent focus on nuclear weapons, courtesy Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the resulting nuclear saber-rattling, we'll take a look at how to do away with nuclear weapons entirely through the Don't Bank on the Bomb program as we talk with Susie Snyder, project lead for Pax No Nukes Project, headquartered in the Netherlands. We'll also have Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, as well as nuclear news from around the world and more honest nuclear information than we will ever hope to get from lamestream media. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May 24, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Brief news this week. 
The Palisades Power Plant in Michigan shut down before the end of the month, leaving us with 92 operating nuclear power plants in the United States. Duke Energy was cited for violations at the Akane Nuclear Station in South Carolina after a February shutdown. The problem? The wrong type of paint was used to coat a steam pipe, which led to billowing smoke and an emergency shutdown of the reactor. Connecticut state legislators passed a bill which would allow expansion of the Millstone nuclear power plant. And there are ongoing seismic concerns at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, where expanded plutonium pit production aims to create the triggers for 80 new nuclear bombs a year. But the complex is located within the complex Pajarito Fault Zone between two earthquake faults. Not a good combination. In Ukraine, Russia says the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant will now be operated by Rosatom and sell electricity to Ukraine, while in Japan, their nuclear regulator has approved plans to dump more than one and a quarter million tons of radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean. Details on all of these next week. Now here's Linda Pence-Gunter with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. You have probably seen a plethora of stories out there in recent weeks, or make that months, touting the need for an injection of big money, our money, into the development of new nuclear reactors. But the politicians who advocate for so-called advanced or small modular reactors are betraying their electorate in the worst possible way. Let's look around. Do you see any small modular reactors? Nope. We can see solar panels and wind turbines on and offshore because they are here now. We can see energy efficiency retrofits and weatherization and insulation programs. They are here now. And we can most certainly see the climate crisis very definitely here now and gaining ominous force. But where are the small modular reactors? Not here and not going to be here for at least 10 years and likely far longer. The track record of nuclear power is one of negative learning. That means, despite being around for decades, nuclear power plants today are taking longer to build and have become more expensive. The more so-called advanced they get, the greater number of technical and safety flaws that develop, holding them back still further and raising the costs even higher. So when politicians make promises about jobs or clean air or carbon reductions based around small modular reactors and then vote for funding for this pointless pursuit, they are robbing their constituents of opportunities that could happen and improve their lives now. Because now, under our climate disaster, is the only timeline that matters. What's even more heinous is that these vacuous political promises about small modular reactors delivering energy and jobs and carbon reductions aren't even what this program is about. SMRs, as they are known in shorthand, are designed for the export market. To be exported, SMRs will need a proven track record. So far, most of what we know about the various designs doesn't bode well for safety, efficiency or cost. That means that the people living in the community chosen to host the first SMR are effectively guinea pigs, testing a reactor that is not immune to fires, leaks or meltdowns so that private corporations can export it for profit to countries like Saudi Arabia. And why are countries, including those without existing nuclear power programs, interested in SMRs? Because they provide a direct pathway to nuclear weapons development. 
We need answers fast now and today to address our rapidly worsening climate crisis. Right now, there are 738 wildfires burning in the US. In New Mexico, they cover almost 900,000 acres. There are 329 wildfires burning in California alone. In such an environment, small modular reactors, whose designs are already known to be highly vulnerable to fire, would be a liability. We cannot go down this path. We don't have time. And we are selling out current and future generations and their very survival if we choose nuclear over renewables and efficiency. That's the message our politicians need to hear from all of us. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, reporting for the Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, nuclear weapons, reactors, uranium mining, radioactive waste, accidents, so-called permissible radiation exposures. The list of nuclear dangers and disasters is as endless as the dangers of plutonium, which remains deadly radioactive for more than a quarter of a million years. Yet despite the known risks, this industry perpetuates itself making obscene amounts of money while threatening the future of the planet and of life itself. That's why you've got Nuclear Hot Seat. We help you know what's going on in the nuclear world and what you can do about it. We're dedicated to giving you the nuclear stories you can't find in mainstream media and provide them with context and continuity so you can understand a full picture. We cover not only what the industry is doing, but how brave activists around the world are fighting back and how any one of us, yes, you too, can take action towards stopping the nuclear madness. That was the wind-up. Here's the pitch. We need your help to keep doing this work, and we make it easy for you to do so. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button, and help us with a donation of any amount. And if you're feeling the financial pinch these days, and let's face it, who isn't, here's a manageable idea. You can set up a recurring donation for as little as $5 a month. Now, that's the same as you would spend on a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S. So how about sitting down with Nuclear Hot Seat and buying us a cup of coffee? We won't drink it, but we will use it to help you get the hottest, most important nuclear stories possible. So if you value in-depth information on nuclear issues from that all-important, different perspective, please go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the button, and know that however much you can help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here is the first of this week's two featured interviews. Atomic Cover-Up is director Greg Mitchell's award-winning film, that presents long-suppressed footage of the human suffering caused by the U.S. nuclear bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945. He's the award-winning author of a dozen books, including 2020's The Beginning of the End, How Hollywood and America Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. His previous books on atomic bombings were Hiroshima in America, with Robert J. Lifton, and Atomic Cover-Up. His film by that name was released in April of 2021 and won the Best Archival Documentary Award from the International Uranium Film Festival. This year, the film has been brought back to the IUFF, which made it a great time for us to revisit my interview with filmmaker Greg Mitchell on how this remarkable film came to be. We spoke on Saturday, May 15, 2021. Greg Mitchell. 
Thanks so much for being with us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Let's start out with a little bit about you. What is your background and what has been your involvement with nuclear issues up to the point that you started working on this film? Uh, I've been a journalist for the past, I guess you'd say, half century. I've been a magazine editor of national magazines here in the U.S., and I've written about a dozen books. I co-produced a movie not long ago about uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. I was involved as chief consultant to a couple of uh, major uh, documentaries. So this is the first film I've actually written and directed myself. But my involvement with nuclear issues goes back, I mean, of course, I could say my entire life since I grew up in the 50s and 60s. So I always was very much affected by the nuclear fears of that period. And then in the early 1980s, I became the editor of a magazine called Nuclear Times, which was the Bible of the anti-nuclear movement in the U.S. It had had an international influence as well. So from about 1982 to 1986, I was the editor of this important anti-nuclear magazine. And so that's when I really plunged deeply into nuclear issues. And as part of that, I uh, during that period, I earned a grant to go to Hiroshima and Nagasaki for over a month. So uh, obviously I became really expert and interested in that, uh, everything relating to the atomic bombings, even more than I was before. And I interviewed dozens of people, including the survivors and um, radiation experts and experts on the, the decision to drop the bomb. But relating to my current movie, the turning point was in 1982, I was exposed to and got to interview one of the two key figures in my movie, the American former army officer who helped shoot this footage that was then suppressed for decades. I first met him, and when I became editor of Nuclear Times, the very first feature I assigned and published was on this gentleman and the suppression of the nuclear footage. I basically have written about it and been interested in it ever since, so that really goes back. I could say my film is 38 years in the making. I didn't work on it nonstop for 38 years, but I have been interested and continued to research and been involved with that subject for that long, really. So you were aware of the footage. When did you first encounter it? When did you first start finding it? And what did it take for you to be able to do so? The Japanese were the first to film in Hiroshima and Nagasaki immediately after the atomic bombings, uh, shooting black and white newsreel footage. When the Americans arrived in September of 1945, shortly after, the Americans seized all that footage. It's black and white newsreel footage. And the American military began doing their own filming in color, which was very rare at the time, shooting in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So basically, the, the two army officers who kind of led that unit, who were the two key figures in my film, you know, created incredible color footage of the uh, aftermath and the survivors, focusing a lot on the people, which most focuses very little on the survivors and the victims. It was on, uh, you know, rubble and destruction of the, the actual landscape. So not only did the Americans seize all the Japanese footage, but then this American, even though it was shot by the U.S. military, when they brought it back to the U.S., it was seized by the military and it was suppressed for decades. So what the film shows is that the, the black and white 
Japanese footage did not emerge anywhere until about 1970, 25 years. And the American uh, color footage even later, around 1980, when it became known that this footage existed. That's how long it was suppressed. So my film shows some of the footage for the first time. It shows the footage, both the black and white and the color footage in 4K for the first time. So even if you've seen some of this footage, you haven't seen it this way before, the quality of the images. And like I said, a lot of it, no one has really seen before. It hasn't been used in films to this date. And so it's a combination of actually showing some of this footage, but also the stories of the American, particularly a man named Herb Susson, who tried for decades to get this footage released and talked to everyone from President Truman himself to top media figures to Robert F. Kennedy and others to try to get this footage released. And it actually only became known around 1980 by pure chance. And so the, that's why the film is called Atomic Cover-Up, because it explores this cover-up. Why? You know, why was it covered up? Why was it suppressed? Why is it important today? Why do we even care about this today? In watching it, I've done a lot of research on my own about this particular era. But first of all, it was more footage than I've ever seen about Hiroshima and Nagasaki from on the ground. And secondly, it cast it in a completely different light because there was a personal human element to it. There were pictures of great devastation with one cart being drawn by a horse or a mule with a couple of people behind it. Apparently, everything they owned in the world was in there. And the juxtaposition, when we say bombing somebody back into the Stone Age, this was really starting to look like it. So it was very deeply impactful. Go into a little bit of detail as to why you think the footage was suppressed for so long, especially from the American public. It's still a sensitive subject today. I mean, I wrote a book a few years ago with Robert J. Lifton called Hiroshima in America, which was all about the aftermath of the bombing and how Americans, uh, both the media and public opinion, dealt with it ever since. We called Hiroshima America's raw nerve. It's something that America still has not faced to this date. It's something we perpetrated. Now, people could disagree on whether it uh, was a good idea or a horrible idea or a war crime or whatever, but the fact is Americans still are not, have not really faced it because it's, it's this raw nerve. They don't, don't really want to touch it. And this was particularly true after we dropped the bombs. You know, the war ended soon afterwards. It was kind of easy to kind of claim that the, it was the bomb that ended the war, even though it's not precisely true. And certainly we wanted the American public to feel that, you know, the bomb was, uh, you know, was a good thing so that we could build more of them and, and begin testing them. And indeed, we then very quickly went ahead with our nuclear testing program, building more bombs, bigger bombs, uh, eventually the hydrogen bomb. So it was important to cast the bomb in, in kind of a useful role and not something that killed hundreds of thousands of civilians. And so what the Americans were exposed to in the many years afterwards was almost only scenes of rubble, scenes of landscape, pictures of the mushroom cloud, great destructions, surely but not people. And what these films showed was focusing on the people, on the survivors, mm -hmm. and what happened to them afterwards and how they suffered and what they looked like. 
So this is what radiation disease looks like. Although we didn't want anyone to know about or know much about radiation disease. So here's images of people who are suffering and dying from radiation disease. And I think in watching my film, without me beating it into the ground, probably 90% of the survivors and victims who are shown are women or children. They're civilians. You know, that's not cherry picking. So when you're going through, okay, I'm going to show this footage and this hospital scene and these patients, and they're almost inevitably women or children. And, and those were indeed 90% of the victims in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So without, I mean, I hope that kind of gets through to people, even if, you know, every five minutes, I'm not saying the victims were civilians. Just watching it, you say, geez, there's one kid after another, and there's yeah. another kid, and there's a woman, and there's maybe an elderly man, and there's another kid, and there's another kid. Those were the victims. I think that's why this footage had to be suppressed for so long, because it was too, uh, too focused on the human toll of the bombings. What did it take for you to be able to garner this footage and be able to use it? Was there pushback? Was there a long process involved with it? Is there still resistance to it getting out? Throughout 1980, it was in the National Archives in the United States. And uh, partly uh, thanks to the article I originally published, filmmakers and the media became aware of it. It really hadn't been used until then. And so starting in, say, 1983, filmmakers and the media started using small bits of it. I, you know, I always tell people, look, this footage is not now suppressed. I didn't do anything like I went in and dug it out or did a Freedom of Information Act. But the fact is, is that in these this 40 years, very, very little of it has been used, partly because the media in the U.S. does not focus on this issue. They don't do very much with it. When they do do documentaries or news coverage, they tend to use the same images mm -hmm. over and again, what's unusual about my film, which is unique, and believe me, perhaps like you, I've seen dozens and dozens of documentaries on this subject over the many years. And so there could be a feeling of how different could this film be. But this is the first film to look at this subject from the eyes of the filmmakers, of the documentarians, of the newsreel, people who shot the newsreels and the cameramen. The entire film is told in first person by yes. the witnesses. And the witnesses are all the filmmakers. This, this is not the usual talking heads. Some expert comes on and explains, you know, what people saw or why it was important. Every single word in the film is from either the Japanese or the American cameramen or directors. And they talk about what they saw and then what happened to the footage afterwards. So it is completely different than any film ever on the subject. I wanted to get to that narration because it was very compelling and it was seamless between the Japanese and the American voices. Now, you said that you had actually interviewed Lieutenant Daniel A. McGovern from the mm -hmm. Army, who was the cameraman for the color footage in Nagasaki. Where did you locate the other voices that you end up having read in voice over? Were any of these people still alive when you started? Or did you have to go to interviews and journal entries? Yeah. What was your sourcing of it? McGovern, who was the head of the American Project, I interviewed it again back in 1983, my 38-year saga here. I interviewed him and I got documents from him, formerly secret documents that he sent me. Herb Sasan, the other American leader, I interviewed him at length at that time. 
so their voices in the film, although they've passed away long ago, almost all of it is based on interviews I did with them myself. The Japanese newsreel people, everything is taken from oral histories that they did or autobiographies that they wrote, the in interviews that they did. So everything is taken directly from their words that I had translated for the first time. No one has ever translated any of these things into English. So I had their words translated. And then the figure who I, I think is totally fascinating is, uh, you might say, the in-between figure. It's a guy named Harry Mamura, who was a uh, well-known Japanese cinematographer. In fact, he shot Akira Kurosawa's first feature. He then did work in Hollywood for uh, studios. Then he went back to Japan. So when the war came, he was in Japan. But the American military knew about him. So when they went into Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they contacted the Toho studio and asked, could, could we use Harry Mamura to shoot a great deal of the American footage? So you have this very unusual and compelling, profound situation where you have this, a Japanese man shooting a great deal of this footage of Japanese victims for the Americans. And again, I had the relevant parts of his autobiography translated into English for the first time. So in the film, you hear Harry Mamura talking about in the first person what it was like to shoot this footage of his countrymen, badly injured, dying countrymen for the Americans, and how he felt quite different because he was a Japanese himself working for the Americans. It's that humanizing voice that comes through that really very quietly underscores the tragedy of what we are seeing. And I appreciate the fact that you weren't coming in with an agenda. You weren't trying to make a point one way or another. You were just presenting the information and allowing us to invest ourselves in what you were showing and what we were hearing. And the combination I found devastating. I should never watch films like that right before I go to bed. <laughs> it's a nightmare, an international nightmare that's still living with us today. So maybe that's a proper, maybe it should give us nightmares. The film just debuted this year. And I believe this is the second showing of it in connection with the International Uranium Film Festival. What are your plans for it or what is set up for it to go forward from this point? It's been submitted to other festivals. It just was released last month. So it's really just beginning its path. We have a distributor in Europe who has made sales to the leading uh, media outlet in Spain. Great. And uh, leading media outlets in Northern Europe and the Baltics and part of Russia. And they're, again, they, they're hoping to place it you know, all over the world. But again, it's very early on. So, and although I, I, I've always made a big point of the resistance of American media to this subject. Certainly, we, we have hopes that one of the streaming services in the U.S., whether it's Netflix or Amazon or public television or Hulu or whatever, will pick it up. And, and maybe for this coming August, you know, there's always a little more coverage. You know, last year was the 75th anniversary, and I had expected great deal of coverage. Actually, there was very little in the U.S., and the little that there was was almost all very much pro-bombing. So it was the opposite of coming to grips and very disappointing. But 
every year in the anniversary, when the August 6th comes up, there always is a little more coverage. So we'll see if we get a major airing this year. Here's hoping that you do. It's such a difficult subject matter that I really do hope that not only you, but all the films from the Uranium Film Festival get picked up as like a channel on Netflix so that people have the opportunity to see the range of what's out there. Although this seems like a very familiar subject and people have seen images for a long time, what I seem to be getting from a lot of people who do see the film is that they're kind of amazed. I think it's put together in a kind of an artful way. People can watch it and feel that it's it's kind of a very artful presentation and not polemical, political, gory. They can come away, like you said, maybe a little bit shattered at the end and decide to look into this issue more or, or take some action. One can only hope. Greg Mitchell, thank you so much for the film you made, for making it available to the International Uranium Film Festival, and for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Director Greg Mitchell on his film, Atomic Cover-Up. Building on its success at the International Uranium Film Festival, in the past year, Atomic Cover-Up has won at the Venice Shorts Festival, the Barrymore Film Center Festival, and at the Ridgewood International Film Festival in New Jersey. The film has been selected for 18 festivals in all, from Tokyo to Hawaii to Florida, New York, and Boston. It just inked a deal for distribution to colleges and high schools, but has not yet been picked up by a streaming service. Netflix? Are you listening? And one more thing. In our post-interview chit-chat, I learned that the film of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that Greg used is all stored at the National Archives and is considered to be in the public domain. Just a thought for you filmmakers out there to know that when you need source material for your nuclear project, that's where it's available. So how can we get rid of nuclear weapons? That's the topic of the second featured interview today. Susie Snyder is project lead for the PAX No Nukes Project and coordinates the Don't Bank on the Bomb research and campaign. She is an expert on nuclear weapons with over two decades of experience working at the intersect between nuclear weapons and human rights. Every year, Don't Bank on the Bomb publishes their global report on the financing of nuclear weapons producers, and it provides a blueprint, as you will hear, for how we can leverage money out of the nuclear weapons industry. While this interview was recorded a few years ago, the information in it is still just as valid And, of course, we'll provide a link to the updated 2021 report. I spoke with Susie Snyder from her home in the Netherlands on May 10, 2019. Note that there will be a brief, unplanned appearance of a young activist who underscores the reason why we do this work. Susie Snyder, thank you so much for being with us here today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Great to be here. Thanks so much. First of all, what is PAX and what are the organization's goals? Well, PAX is a Dutch peace organization and what we're doing, we are working to reduce uh, human suffering as a result of conflict. Um, and so to, to prevent war, prevent suffering, uh, and generally to, to make sure that we build norms that keep people safe and keep people alive. What are 
some of your cornerstone programs. I'm certainly familiar with Don't Bank on the Bomb because I've followed that protocol with my own finances. What is this and how can people participate in it? Don't Bank on the Bomb is a great project um, that is, what we do is we, we do three things. We examine the impact of the financial sector on companies that produce nuclear weapons. We name those companies, name them and shame them. And we encourage people to get in touch with their financial institutions so that they develop policies so that they don't have any exposure to these companies that do produce the key components for nuclear bombs. So it's, it's naming the ones that have investments, it's supporting the ones that have great policies not to invest, and it's, of course, identifying the companies that make the bombs, because if we don't know who's doing it, we don't know what we can do about it. Speaking of those companies, there has just been a new report that came out naming 28 separate companies as being involved in the manufacture of nuclear weapons. How did that report come about, and what are some of the findings you've made because of it? Well, let me tell you, Libby, it was a good deal of research, and we are extremely rigorous in our research. So we've been looking at contracts and announcements for contracts, requests for proposals, and so on for the last, uh, for the last six months. Um, and so what we did is, as we looked at these, we looked at these different issues, and we, sorry, sorry, I, I'm no. sure that many of your listeners also have children. <laughs> and it's so they're hearing in the background. <laughs> Susie, this is the reason we do the work that we do for the children and beyond. So this could not be more perfect. <laughs> it is just the reality, you know, working moms everywhere. Um, anyway, so what we did is um, we looked at the contracts, we looked at the, the government plans, different government plans for new types of nuclear weapons, for the weapons that are under these so-called modernization programs, and then we looked to see, okay, who's actually doing this in-house, so to speak? Like, what, what countries are doing it? There's only nine countries that have nuclear weapons, right? It's not so many at the end of the day. And we look at who does stuff in-house using state-run agencies and who contracts out. Now, not everybody contracts out. Russia does stuff mostly in-house. Uh, North Korea does everything in-house. Pakistan does stuff in-house. But India, um, the US, the UK, France, they all, con they all hire external contractors. So then we follow the money. Who bids on the contracts? Who gets the contracts? And what are they doing? What are they actually doing under these contracts? And that's where we found exciting. Well, it's exciting in, a, in not a nice way, <laughs> to be honest. It's, but we found that, you know, we found over $116 billion in existing contracts right now for keeping nuclear weapons on the planet. And some of them until 2075, which all of these countries have said, the heads of state at one time or another said, no, we need a world without nuclear weapons. And I'll tell you, you don't get to a world without nuclear weapons by hiring Boeing or Raytheon or Lockheed Martin to build a new nuclear arsenal for you. Some of the stories that I've read about coming out from the contracts are truly, it's like going into bizarro land. Uh, give us some examples. For example, when the head of Raytheon was asked if there was a growth opportunity in the U.S. exit from the INF Treaty. So this is really surprising. I mean, okay, usually with nuclear weapons, nobody's really, at least nobody should be really proud 
to be making nuclear weapons. These are weapons designed to, you know, your listeners will know this already. These are weapons designed to annihilate cities. They're not for battlefields. They're not for strategic pinpoint accuracy. This is a city buster. And that's, I think that's really important to keep in mind. And for the most part, over the last, almost the last generation, people have been shying away from, from taking pride in this, but then there are a few. Um, and there's been a slight change in the rhetoric around this. So when you know, Donald Trump took office, he asked these questions, why would we have nuclear weapons if we could never use them? And he started saying, well, maybe we need, you know, we need to go back to make more and the biggest and the best weapons. Um, and he's basically inciting an arms race by withdrawing from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, this treaty from 1987 that prohibited an entire class of weapons, he opened the floodgates on this. And so in Raytheon, and Raytheon of all companies, Raytheon kind of was getting out of the nuclear arms game. It was seen as a, as a losing interest. But then the withdrawal from the INF came about and they said, oh wait, we might have an opportunity here, at least in the short term. So you, you saw the investor relations call, they said, they were asked the question, oh yeah, you know, is there any opportunity for us? And over the next quarter, Raytheon got 500 million and new contracts related to missile technology. Um, so Raytheon's starting to cash in on this new nuclear arms race, and I just have to ask the question, what are they, you know, they're only looking for short-term game. What are they looking for in the long-term? Because this is not the kind of product that we should be supporting. It's a terrifying thought that nuclear weapons are looked at as a growth industry and an opportunity for investor profits when really their end game is the destruction of everything and their profits will mean nothing. There are other programs that have been brought up in the reading that I've been doing. And another one had to do with Boeing and a new program that the company that brought us the twice-crashed 737 MAX is being asked to develop. What is a flight termination receiver and what are the implications of the attempt to develop it? Okay, so this is something that within the nuclear policy community, there's some debate, right? So the flight termination receiver is, the idea is you, you can call the missile back because it takes about, it takes between 25 and 40 minutes for an intercontinental ballistic missile to be launched and hit its target. And that means that once you press the button, there's, there's two hours until the end of civilization as we know it, because any target, they're going to they're gonna see the incoming missile and they're going to launch in return. They're going to try to take everything out before you take out what they've got. That's the whole, that's, there was this whole concept behind mutually assured destruction. So with what Boeing is doing now is they're making this new missile technology so that if you launch and you decide, oh, wait, whoops, our, our information was wrong. Oh, actually, it was a weather balloon. Oh, no, that wasn't an incoming missile. It was, you know, it was a pigeon. You, whatever it is, and I, I don't mean to make light of it, but seriously, what, there's been so many near misses. It could be anything. The idea is that the missile would then go off course or would, or would self-destruct. So it wouldn't have the same, um, it wouldn't hit its target. So the idea is to be able to, to shift it in flight. Now, on the one hand, you know, this could be great because then it, you know, it won't hit its target and you could, you could stop some insanity. But on the other hand, if you see the missile coming in, you're going to fire with everything you've got. And so it's a losing situation. It's a losing proposition. And honestly, 
as you said, Libby, I mean, how much can we trust Boeing right now? It's how much do we trust anybody who is working in nuclear arms because they can somehow justify it. I've also seen that one of the problems with having a flight termination receiver is that it might call for a launch of a weapon and then using it just as a scare tactic because they think, well, we can pull it back and there will be no harm, no foul, when indeed, you're right, the retaliation could be volleyed out before we could pull it back and they might not be able to do so and there goes the planet, or if not the planet, at least the people and the life forms on it. Exactly, and what we've learned from new climate research, from new modeling over the, just the last 10 years is that it doesn't take a thousand bombs going off to destroy the civilization that we, that we know. It would take a hundred weapons between, for example, India and Pakistan and two billion people, two billion people would be at risk of famine. It would cause grave environmental catastrophe. It would, it would be a nuclear winter. And in the 80s, we were totally aware of this. We're like, okay, this is not going to happen. We're going to stop it. We're going to shut this down. This is insane. And right now, it's our time to stand up and say, hey, this is insane. There are so many more things that we could spend the money on. The U.S. government alone is spending $70,000 a minute on producing nuclear weapons. $70,000 a minute. Imagine what $70,000 a minute could do for public education, addressing climate change. The nuclear weapons problem, it's complicated, but it's, it's a relatively easy fix. And it's just a matter of deciding to do it. And now's the time for people to, to demand that we do. You know, you're right. On the one hand, it's a terribly depressing image for those of us who oppose nuclear and have managed to become conscious about it. Yet, in the intertwining of the private sector and nuclear weapons, there are potential points of leverage. Explain what you mean by that. This is what's, what I'm finding is very exciting. So two years ago, most of the, the nations in the world adopted a new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. They said, you know what? This has gone bonkers long enough, and the consequences of any use of nuclear weapons are so grave, we need to prohibit everything to do with them. Prohibit all the making, having, using, preparing to use, pro prohibit it. Make it illegal. Make sure that we are collectively responsible if any weapons get used you know, reinforce the non-proliferation standard by doing so. Protect the environment. This is so most governments in the world said, yes, we're going to do this. And after that, financial institutions, banks, pension funds, insurance companies, they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If the weapons are illegal, the companies that are making the weapons, they're going to start to go down. Let's get out. Let's get out now. Let's prevent any reputational risk or regulatory risk. Let's end our financial involvement with these companies. And 10% of them dropped out. It was amazing. When you said 10% of them dropped out, explain a little more about what that exactly means. We've been doing this kind of analysis of the involvement of the financial sector and nuclear weapon producers for, for a while now, since 2013. 
and we check every year how many how many banks and how many financial institutions invest. And from the adoption of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons until a year later, there was a 10% reduction. There's it's in actual numbers, there's 30 fewer financial institutions that had investments in the companies that produce nuclear weapons. And some of these are, are really like this is Blue Cross and Blue Shield that previously had some investments and then got out. This is, you know, the Norwegian government pension funds that said, oh, wait a minute, we, we better change our relationship here. This is ABP, which is the fifth largest pension fund in the world. And they said, oh, hang on. Nope, nuclear is illegal now. Gotta get out of that game, which is quite impressive. And we're putting together the numbers for this year. And I think we're gonna see some, some additional positive change. There's, you know, even though a few companies are starting to make money off of new contracts, in most of the world, this is seen as a bad investment. I often think of PACS and the Nobel Peace Prize winning international campaign for the abolition of nuclear weapons, or ICANN, which was behind the treaty in the United Nations, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. I often think of you two as kind of either conjoined or somehow being under the same umbrella. What is the relationship between the two groups? PAX is a partner of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and ICANN is a campaign coalition, and we've got over 500 partners in more than 100 countries around the world. And it was ICANN working with these partnerships, also with with concerned governments, with international organizations like the, the Global Red Cross that got this treaty to happen. It was, it was through partnership. It was through a movement. And PACS is a, is a part of this bigger movement. We're really proud to be a member of this campaign coalition because it means that we're, as we said in the, the local papers here, the Nobel Peace Prize got won in our little town, at least a little bit. It's quite amazing. Let's switch over to talking a little bit about ICANN and the impact that that is having and can potentially have on the entire nuclear weapons landscape in the world. It is not a campaign to ask the nine nuclear countries to get rid of their weapons. It's a campaign to get all of the countries that don't have nuclear weapons to agree to not get nuclear weapons. And then there are other provisions involved with it as well. Can you explain what those are and how those would mess up the nuclear countries? Sure. So the thing is with, with ICANN is that we're working in over 100 countries to raise the stigma against nuclear weapons. And most countries of the world have already rejected nuclear weapons. It's just this nine that are seem to be a bit stuck and seem to be kind of a, I don't know, it's a little bit of old thinking and that doesn't quite relate to the current world order. But the ICANN is working even in the nuclear armed countries to say, hey, we have a plan to get to no nuclear weapons in the world. We know the nuclear armed countries, they're clearly not ready yet. They haven't quite matured to the level of, of many others to be able to, to take a more realistic and pragmatic approach to their security but the other countries have. And so countries like Austria and Ireland, South Africa are fully on board with this treaty because they recognize that there is no, no benefit to them and only risk from supporting nuclear weapons. What this means is that financial institutions in those countries have seen what happens with other weapons prohibitions and they get out 
of the of the game when it comes to to investing in companies that produce the weapons. Companies like Airbus. Airbus is a as a Dutch registered company. Airbus has operations throughout Europe. Airbus is known for making airplanes. Airbus also makes missiles for the French nuclear arsenal. And what this does is it says that if you, if Airbus, for example, when Germany signs on to the ban treaty, the operations that Airbus has within Germany can't be involved in the production of missiles for France or for anybody else, because that's prohibited under the treaty. And that would change the landscape for France. France doesn't have a, another capability or that they have to move manufacturing capabilities. And that's, that's really important. And also, the treaty also has this great impact because it makes the question of, it challenges the assumption that nuclear weapons benefit anyone's security. And in fact, puts the onus on those who have the weapons, prove it. You've been saying this for so long with no evidence. You've been you know, quite hysterical about your security concerns. No, be rational, be calm, prove that this is the only way forward. And if it is in fact the only way forward, why are you so united against other countries getting the same weapons? Why does North Korea use the same language as France in defending its, its decision to get nuclear weapons? You know, be a calm, rational actor in this field and not the hysterical nuclear-armed countries that we've come to know. It seems that this program, the Treaty for the Prevention of Nuclear War and the countries that sign on to it would really signify a grassroots erosion of the ability of the nuclear industry to operate unimpeded. In other words, putting perhaps, if not a block in the road, a stone in the shoe, that they can't move forward as they planned on it. And here in the U.S., we are starting to see some changes, at least on the state and the local level. In January, a bill was introduced in the Massachusetts state legislature that would require the state's pension funds to divest from nuclear manufacturers. The city of Cambridge has already done so, and here in California, Ojai will not make any future investments in the makers or funders of nuclear weapons. Do you think that the best way for us to proceed is to work on the local grassroots level rather than going for the big guys in Washington, D.C. or the heads of whatever countries, people listening to this show in 123 countries that listen to it, um, not going after the top of the governmental food chain, but starting local is the path we need to follow? Well, I think it depends on where people are. So in the U.S., you know, one out of every eight Americans lives in California. So when the California state legislature passes a resolution calling on the U.S. federal government to endorse and embrace the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, that is significant. And that is a demonstration of the will of the people. Nuclear weapons are the opposite of democracy. They are the opposite of people's movements. And it's going to take people's movements being creative in the locations they are to get change. We just had today, which said Berlin, both the city of Berlin as well as the federal state of Berlin, come on board and call on the German government to join this treaty. Oh, that's fabulous. I hadn't gotten that news yet. Yeah, and, and it's happening every day. There are new cities joining. There are new, there's new state resolutions being discussed. There are conversations happening. And the key thing is, 
nuclear weapons are an anachronism and we can move past them, but we have to talk about them. And we have to talk about them, not just with our friends that it's comfortable to talk about them with, but to talk about them in other places and reach out. Because I'll tell you, we ran a petition campaign a couple of years ago in the Netherlands. And what we found is that nine out of every 10 people we asked said, of course we don't support nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are dumb. Wait, they're still a problem? I thought they were gone. Most people don't know. And as soon as they know, they think, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. This is a problem of the 80s. Let's, let's send it to the dustbin of history. That attitude and that emphasis and that enthusiasm is starting to catch like a wildfire throughout the world. And it will change the minds of those sitting in the high political offices. If you are friends with the head of state, by all means, call your buddy and tell them to get on board with this treaty. If, however, you are not friends with the head of state, think about other ways you can, you can help support this, this effort to make nuclear weapons history. That brings us to the practicalities. What are things that people on the ground can do and what tools do you have? Because the research is extensive and it is impeccable. Everything is footnoted. Everything is accurate in it because we can't, our side can't afford to make mistakes. What do you have available that we can use to support anything that we are saying or doing on the ground? Well, the first thing I would encourage your listeners to just sign up to our newsletter. We're constantly putting information out. It's at nuclearban.org. And there's tons of info there. Well, now, it depends, again, where people are. If you want to figure out how to make sure your personal finances are in no way connected to the companies that produce nuclear weapons, whether it be through your bank or through your pension investment or other things, um, we have checklists on our website for people to use. We just, you know, quickly make, scan the website, see if your bank's listed, send them a message. We have tools you can directly send your bank a message. And a lot of people these days, myself included, use um, do banking on our phones, right? Mobile banking is, is like the thing. And I encourage people all the time, pull out your phone, go to your banking app, and just send a message directly to your bank right now and just say, hey, are we in any way connected to companies that produce nuclear bombs? When you ask that question through your mobile app, through walking into your local bank branch, whatever it is, you're starting a chain reaction of the good kind. The person on the other end probably has no idea. So they're going to have to ask somebody, is going to have to ask somebody, is going to have to ask somebody. We saw a number of financial institutions get out of the, this type of investment because people started asking questions on their Facebook profiles. And there's this like, oh, that's not good. We can't have this. Oh, wait, wait, let's check. Let's check. <gasps> okay, well, let's get that. They, they divested first, and then they put into place a policy to make sure that they'll never have any kind of investments in, connected to nuclear weapon producers in the future. And it's part of their internal due diligence now. It wasn't a huge number of people that did this. It was three or four people that saw something in the newspaper, that saw a tweet, that heard something on the radio. And they took action because it truly is, as Margaret Mead said, it truly is a small handful of thoughtful and committed people that can change the world. And there are many people who would love the extra energy and attention and the quick question. 
do we have anything to do with the nuclear bomb? If so, how can we avoid it? And we can, and we will. The brilliance of this program is that any individual can make an enormous difference simply by taking a few steps that are already brilliantly strategized and plotted out and framed as you have done, as the people with PACs have done, and I can as well. If you have any final thoughts to share with the listeners today, what would that be? I would ask your listeners to tell a friend. Each one can reach one and each one can teach one. And that is how we will get this change. And that is how we will be able to retire from working on nuclear weapon issues and put our energy into dealing with the new challenges that face a new century. Susie Snyder, you have been doing brilliant work I've been aware of your work since Helen Caldicott's conference, I believe it was five or six years ago, and the progress has been astonishing and breathtaking. I always report on any positive steps that we find out that have been taken by either PACS or ICANN on Nuclear Hot Seat, because we've got to get our new good news from somewhere, and it seems to come inordinately from these two groups. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. It's always a great pleasure. And I really appreciate the opportunity today. And I appreciate you being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Susie Snyder of PAX Netherlands and Don't Bank on the Bomb. We'll have a link to her website where you can download the 2021 Global Report on the Financing of Nuclear Weapons Producers. Make certain you send it to your bank, your credit union, pension fund, financial advisors, and family members. It's an easy thing to do that can really help you make a difference. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 24th, 2022. Don't miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. You can subscribe on the podcast channel of choice, or you can get it delivered via email every week. Sign up by going to NuclearHotSeat.com, Scroll for the yellow box, put in your first name and email address, and every week you'll get one email with the link and a short description of the show's content. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment, go to the website, click on the red button, and know that anything you do will help, and we will really appreciate your support. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that none of us is out of prison as long as one nuclear bomb exists, Sister Megan Rice. There you go. That has been your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.